0: And uh, I want to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. As we come into this new series, we're going to be studying the book of Leviticus, which, if we're honest, is a book of the Bible that has been the death of many uh, well-intentioned Bible reading plans, including my own when I was a younger man. It's true. You come to the book of Leviticus, and it can be a real challenge. Uh, You feel like, am I reading this just as a, like, is this kind of a, self-flagellation like why do i need to read this well actually there's there's all kinds of goodness in the book of leviticus but you wouldn't know that because it is the book of the bible that is more often cited by critics of christianity online than it is by christians themselves it's a book of the bible that i imagine to our shame many christians look at with embarrassment instead of delight and joy so I'm excited we're coming into this study. I think it's going to be so helpful for us to see the goodness of this book of the Bible. Why did God give this to us? And in light of all of our concerns about this book of the Bible, I do smile a little bit when I think of the, just the situation we're in, that We had planned this series in advance, and here God puts us right on the lawn while we study this. Leviticus on the lawn, probably one of the nightmares of many Christians, right? Our church growth strategy is well underway, and uh, I'm really, really looking forward to what God's going to do in our midst. The title of our series is Elementary, because we understand that Leviticus and all of the Mosaic law was given to us by God to function as a sort of tutor. So the law was given to teach us and to reprove us and to correct us and to train us up in righteousness. And the Apostle Paul, pointing back to the law, said to the church in Galatia, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. You've probably heard it said. I know Pastor Paul uses this language a lot. The law was like a kindergarten teacher. And so the law was giving us these, you, know, you can imagine these little building blocks And and the law was giving us these little building blocks of the faith that helped us to understand and assemble and and identify what it is that God is doing in this world. Now, when Jesus came, and you can imagine these building blocks on the table, it's not as if Jesus came and just whipped the building blocks off the table and said, ha, no, here's Jesus' approach to the law. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So here's another analogy. So forget the building blocks for a moment. Now imagine a candle. So the law was like a candle. And you can imagine all the things that we need to know about God and this world and ourselves and this plan of redemption. All the things that we need to know, they're in this dark room. And, and the law was like a flickering candle. And by the light of this candle, we could see a few things. Vaguely, distinctly, in their shapes and their silhouettes. And we we were trying to make sense of it all. But then Jesus Christ came, and he's like the sun, right? Filled the room up with light, and suddenly we could understand. So B.B. Warfield, he uses this analogy, and he, he describes it this way. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber, richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clear view... Much of what was in it, but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the full revelation, which follows it, but is only perfected, extended, and enlarged. Right? So Jesus came in, and Jesus turned on all the lights, and suddenly we could see. We could see what all of these lessons were pointing forward to. And of course, Jesus says, they were pointing to me. He said, I'm the fulfillment, right? I, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So the Israelites understood the symbols in part, but now on this side of the cross, we see what the object lessons were pointing towards. And in Christ, the lessons of the law are perfected, extended, and enlarged. So that being said, that's our introduction to this whole series. Over the course of the next 10 weeks, we're going back to the kindergarten classroom. So that's how you can imagine this series in Leviticus, elementary. We're, under, we're going to revisit these elementary principles. We're going to pick up the building blocks and say, what were we supposed to learn here? And over the course of the series, we're going to ask this one overarching question. What does the law teach us about X, this building block? And today we're asking the question, what does the law teach us about God. What does the law teach us about God? To answer that question, we're going to look at Leviticus 1, verses 1 to 9. So you should be there in your Bibles now. Hear now God's holy, inspired, living and active word to us today. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of one of you brings an offering to the Lord, You shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him, to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I said, Leviticus can, at first glance, the first time you read through that, it feels a little bit jarring, doesn't it? This is why, you know, Leviticus on the lawn. It's gonna be an interesting experience for anyone who drives by and hears one snippet of this sermon, and that's okay. In this passage, we're introduced to the burnt offering. This is the most common sacrifice in Israelite worship. So these burnt offerings were made every morning and every evening. Every day would begin with this pillar of smoke rising up from the tabernacle. The burnt offering included a number of steps, right? So you had to have a, a spotless male from the herd. You had the laying on of hands, the shedding of blood, the burning of this dismembered sacrifice up to the Lord. And every piece of that sacrifice was ordained for our instruction, right? The whole process teaches us But our first three lessons actually come before the sacrifices even started. See, here's the first thing that we learn about God as we consider the law. We learn that he draws near. He draws near. So most of your Old Testament is written in the language of Hebrew. Some of it's in Aramaic, but the vast majority of it is in Hebrew. And this book begins with the Hebrew word Vayikar. And I just finished my Hebrew courses, so it's the first time I feel comfortable saying that. Though we're not going to go too crazy. But it begins with Viacar, which means, and he called. So this book of the Bible begins with the word and. And he called. Now, if you were beginning a standalone book, you wouldn't begin with the word and, would you? Well, neither would, would Moses. That's not what he's doing here. What he's doing is he's expecting us to connect this back with all that's come before it. Because, in fact, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, are meant to be read as a whole. So if I've got a Lord of the Rings fan, you don't need to raise your hand. But you can imagine meeting someone and they say, oh, I love Lord of the Rings. And you're just like, well, that's great. They say, yeah, I read it. The Two Towers was wonderful. And you're like, well, good. Well, what did you think of the Fellowship of the Ring? Return of the King, what would you think? And they're like, oh, I didn't bother reading those. You'd look at them like, what are you doing? Because it's meant to be read as a whole. So it is here. I'm not comparing the Bible to Lord of the Rings. I regret that analogy. It's a whole, right? The five books of the Bible are meant to be considered together. And in fact, when we look at Hebrew literature, something else we need to keep in mind is that in English, the climax typically comes at the end of a book, right? So you you read up to the end, and at the end, it's, oh, this big shock, and it's wonderful, and the payoff is great. That's the way that we write in English. In Hebrew, actually, the center was, was, the climax was the center. And so as we look at the Pentateuch, these five books, Guess what the climax of the Pentateuch is? The third book, which is Leviticus. That book that we are so embarrassed about all the time. That's actually the center, the climax of the Pentateuch. Think about the story that we find in these first five books of the Bible. We begin in Genesis, and God is in the presence of his people, right? He's with them. He's dwelling with them. It's glorious. But then in chapter 3, right at the beginning of the Bible, they sin, and they're cast out from the presence of God. And then you see this awful decline, just further and further and further from Eden. Now, if you flip ahead to Deuteronomy, to the final book in the Pentateuch, it ends with God back in the presence of God, in a way, with the tabernacle, back in the presence of God and heading into this land of promise. And so you wonder, well, how did we get from here, cast out of his presence, to here, in his presence, going into the land of promise? What has changed? We find that right in the climax of the Pentateuch. The book of Leviticus, that's where we find the answer to that question. So what happened? How was this relationship possible? One commentator puts it this way, the primary theme and theology of Leviticus and of the Pentateuch as a whole is Yahweh's opening a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence. So if we're going to read this in light of the story, then we need to look actually at what came right before it. What happened right before he said, and he called Look at Exodus 40, verses 34 to 38. You probably don't even need to flip a page, right? It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So God in this this presence, this tangible presence, this glorious presence is is dwelling with his people. And it's like this cloud of glory. And whenever he moves, they move. And when he stays, they stay. So you've got this glorious presence of God. This is the same God who cast Adam and Eve out of the garden for their sin. The same God who appointed an angel and a flaming sword to guard the way back into Eden. The same God who revealed himself to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And there was thunder and there was lightning. And he said, if anyone even touches the foot of this mountain, they will die. That God is now in the camp in a tent and this shekinah glory cloud is just visible for everyone to see god has drawn near to his people it's remarkable they had been cast out of the garden of eden but in the tabernacle god had had essentially brought the garden of eden back to them and it was sitting there right in the center of the camp So at the bottom of the mountain, in the presence of a sinful people, in a portable tent, the holy, perfect, spotless God of the universe was once again dwelling with his people. Just take a second and imagine what that would have felt like for the Israelites. Just, I mean, we read these passages and it feels like a story, you know, maybe it feels like a children's story. It's not. These are real people seeing this indescribable cloud of magnificence. And they know there is a God and he's with us. He's right here. I'm sure it filled them up with courage and joy and hope. On the flip side, however, they know this God. And they know what this God does when he's in the midst of a sinful people, right? They know what happened with Adam and Eve. And so this presence was also a source of fear, I would imagine, For the people of God. If he cast out Adam and Eve, those two people, for their sin, and it brought death and sin and ruin, then what is he going to do in the midst of this nation of grumbling, rebellious people? How will this not be our destruction? Well, indeed, that's actually the second lesson that we learn. What does the law teach us about God? It teaches us that he can only be approached on his terms. So if you look back at Exodus 40, look in at verse 35, it says, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So even though you've got the presence of God once again with his people, right? Return to Eden. Still, there's a problem. The problem is there's still sin. The Israelites are covered in it. So too is Moses. There's still a sinful people. When the glory of God fell, not even Moses, the spiritual leader appointed by God, Not even Moses was fit to enter into God's presence. L. Michael Morales notes here. This is very helpful. This is a longer quote. So lean in. He says, Exodus 40 closes with a wonder. The garden of Eden planted, as it were, in the midst of Sinai's arid wilderness. Pause for a second, because this is actually a really critical component. Remember when you read about all of the different aspects of the tabernacle and what it looked like? And and you're reading through that, and you're going, why on earth am I reading all the specifications for this tent? I don't understand. Well, you realize it's because the tabernacle was meant to resemble Eden. That's why you've got these wooden um, pomegranates kind of designed into the stand. It's supposed to be this example of walking back into the garden. That's why the Ark of the Covenant has those golden cherubim with the wings covering the, the throne of God. That's supposed to resemble the angels that were guarding Eden because we can't get back into his glorious presence. And so the tabernacle was essentially resembling Eden. That's, that's a critical piece we want to lock away in our, in our minds. So now Israel's mediator, I'm back to the quote here. So Eden's back in the, in the center of the camp, but Israel's mediator, however, is unable to enter through Eden's gates into the glory of the divine presence. So Leviticus begins with Israel, God's second firstborn son, second Adam, standing outside the cherubim-guarded entry of Eden. So to put it simply, at Leviticus 1, we find ourselves back at Genesis 3. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are standing outside of the garden, and they're looking at the garden, and it's guarded by an angel, and they can't get back because of their sin. That's exactly the scenario that we find ourselves in Leviticus 1. God's glory over the tabernacle, this thing resembling the garden, and here is Moses, the mediator, standing at a distance, unable to go in. This is one of the elementary lessons that we need to learn in our Old Testament. I'll present it with a question. Who can dwell with our holy God? Who can dwell with our holy God? And to be frank, I think it is evident in the in the church at large, that we don't read our Old Testament enough because that question doesn't shock us the way that it should. Before I answer it, let me ask it one more time. Who can dwell with our holy, holy, holy God? Can you? You realize he is he is perfection. His justice cannot overlook a single offense. He is a consuming fire. Everything that we love about him comes from this holiness, this justice, There's, he's unblemished. There's there's no wrong, which means whenever you bring sin into his presence, he consumes it like a flaming fire. So then who could come before him? Adam and Eve couldn't, they were cast out. When the glory of the Lord fell, Moses couldn't enter in. Can you? Can I come before this God? I think we take for granted sometimes how remarkable it is that we just bowed down in this field and prayed to this God. Why should he listen to us? Why does he listen to us at all? I don't know what you've done, but I know what I've done. And I know my heart and my thoughts. And How could a holy, holy, holy God tolerate me? And yet he does. But we have to come to him on his terms. And that's one of the, the fundamental lessons we learn in the Old Testament. We can't just come willy-nilly before this holy God. We can't. We have to come in the terms that he has prescribed. So, for example, you know the story of Nadab and Abihu? That's one of those challenging stories in Leviticus, right? We find it in Leviticus 10. You can flip ahead. Leviticus 10, verses 1 to 2. They approach God carelessly, casually. We read, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and he put fire in it and he laid incense on it and he offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the lord it's a jarring story isn't it commentators speculate as to what really happened here they say well maybe they were drunk when they went into the tabernacle or maybe they were mocking god they were being silly perhaps we don't know but the the text actually tells us what they did the text tells us what the problem was they went in and they offered this offering to the lord this offering that he did not prescribe that he did not order they thought that they could just approach god on their terms and they died. Are you offended by that? It's, just, it's offensive at first, isn't it? If you're offended, that's because you don't yet realize how holy, holy, holy our God is. And how much of a problem our sin is. If, if you've got a vision of God who, who can make peace with sin. Who can tolerate sin. Who can turn a blind eye to sin. Then you haven't seen him as he is. You, know, you read Genesis and Exodus, and you read about the Israelites, these people, and you watch as they respond to this marvelous grace of God with indifference and ingratitude again and again and again. And you listen, listen in as they grumble and they complain when they ought to be giving thanks again and again and again. And these stories ought to leave you thinking two things. One, these Israelites sound a lot like me, right? If you don't think that when you read the Old Testament, I don't know if, you're, I don't know if you have a right assessment of yourself. Right, the ingratitude and the grumbling and the inability to appreciate the splendor of what God has done for us. I see that all over myself. We should see ourselves in the Israelites. And then two, we should be asking the question, how could it be that God would draw near to us? It's a scandal. It doesn't make sense. And when we read the law and we read it carefully, that's what ought to happen. St. Augustine said this, the law was given in order to convert a great man into a little man to show that you have no power of your own for righteousness and might thus poor, needy, and destitute flee to grace. You know what the law does? It does to us preemptively what, what's going to happen to us when we stand before this holy, holy, holy God. Because one day we're going to stand before the judge. And there are a lot of people walking around like, I'm a really great person. I'm wonderful. In fact, I'm flawless. And we've got all these things in the closet and all these thoughts that we, you know, we either ignore them or we suppress them. And we say, well, I'm great. What the law does is the law says, are you really? John Calvin says, it's like a mirror. The, the law is like a mirror held up in front of your face. He says, look at yourself. See, see yourself for who you really are. Deal honestly with what you see in that mirror. Are you really ready to stand before a holy God? Now, some people never stand before that mirror and deal honestly with it. And the Bible says they will stand before the judge. And in that moment, they'll see everything that they refuse to see in the mirror and they'll fall on their face and say, I, I was not a great man. I was not a great woman. I was lying to myself in the world. And God will say, well, you didn't lie to me. The law is a great mercy. It helps us to see that we cannot come to God on our own terms. We can't do it. We have to come to him on his terms. And that brings us to the, the first word of Leviticus, remember? And he called. And there we learn our third critical, beautiful lesson about our God. Here's what we learn. He goes first. He goes first. So we begin Leviticus with the glorious presence of God over there. Moses and the people over here, they can't get there. I'm like, well, what are we going to do? Here, we want to be in the presence of God, but we can't. He's a consuming fire. He will destroy us. So are we going to forever stand at a distance and look at him from afar and long for his presence but not have it? Is there any way to bridge this chasm? That's, that's the question that we're, we're lingering in. And then we read these glorious words. And God called. He called out. He didn't simply speak. He didn't simply teach. He, he called. He pointed at Moses. Particularly, he points at him. He brings him in. And for the next 27 chapters, God explains to him exactly how this relationship is going to work. Exactly how this bridge is going to be chasmed, exactly how this presence is going to be enjoyed. He says, I'm going to do this, you're going to do this, I'll do this, and you'll do this, and that will work, Moses, because I'm gracious. The book of Leviticus is, is about a holy God prescribing a way for unholy people like us to live in fellowship with Him. And, and it's about how they will slowly and surely grow in holiness. See, it's, it's more than just in, enjoying the presence of God. In, even in the book of Leviticus, God teaches us that when we're in his presence, we will change. He says, be holy as I'm holy. Like, the gospel is always supposed to change us, and that was true in the Old Testament. The book of Leviticus is the story of sinners graciously saved and made to look like their savior. So that we would be a blessing to the world, right? That's what God's promised to Abraham. He says, I'm going I'm to give you your seed. He's going to be a blessing to the nations. Uh, we're overflow people. P.S., if your life is not a blessing to the nations, then you're not yet seeing what you ought to see, right? He, he puts his spirit in us to change us. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. This isn't the work of the flesh. It's the work of the spirit in us. Right, so as Christians, he's changing us and he's making us more of a blessing to the world because as we resemble him, that's good for the world. Your life should be good for the world around you. And this book, this book of Leviticus, may not appear at first glance, but it is a gospel book, teaches us that God goes first. God goes first. Old Testament and New, our God calls out to sinners and He invites them into relationship with Himself. And He doesn't wait for us to get our act together and He doesn't sit idly by while we try to build our ladder to heaven. No, our God goes first. He called out to Moses and He gave him clear and precise instructions as to how God's people would be enabled to enjoy His presence. And now we're, we're turning to those instructions and there we learn our fourth lesson. This is so critical. Here's what we learned about God. He will not overlook sin. He will not overlook sin. So here's, again, we're back to the scene. God calls out to Moses. Here's the the glory. He says, here's how this relationship is going to be made possible, Moses. It seems impossible, right? You're probably frightened. I'm going to strike everyone down. I'm not. But here's how this relationship is going to work. And the very first instruction is about what God is going to do to deal with our sin. It's it's the burnt offering. This this is what you're going to do to deal with your sin in the morning and in the evening. And this is how my presence in your midst is going to be made possible. In verse 4, we learn about what, what this burnt offering is all about. It says, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him. Why? What's this burnt offering about? To make atonement for him. To make atonement, to, to take this relationship where you're there and I'm over here, and this is going to make us one. This burnt offering somehow is going to make oneness possible. What was the problem that needed to be dealt with? It was sin, of course. The burnt offering is, is about dealing with our sin. In the book of Job, we learn this. Job, we read in chapter 1, his, whenever his children would throw a party or a, a feast, Job would wake up early the next morning and he would offer up this burnt offering. And as he offered up this burnt offering for his children, he thought to himself, we read in Job 1.5, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So thus Job did continually. It's a, it's a sin offering to make atonement. So the Israelite, they brought a spotless male from the herd to the temple. If you go on reading in chapter one, you'll see that some of them couldn't afford a spotless male from the herd. And so they'd bring a spotless uh, lamb from the flock And if they couldn't afford a lamb, then they would bring a pigeon or a turtle dove. So there's this, uh, God gives a concession, the fact that some of us can't afford these things. But he he wants this value, right? He wants us to express that this is a grievous offense. So they bring it forward and then they lay their hand on it. Uh, The Hebrew says they like lean on the offering. And in doing that, they identify with the offering. And then the text says, this is where it gets a little gory. He says, then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood, and they shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. So he identifies himself with the animal, and then he kills the animal, and the Levite collects the blood and he splashes the blood against the altar. And then the, the Israelite cuts up this animal and then they put it all onto the, the altar and they, they burn the whole entire thing. They don't save any of it. None of this goes to the Levites. None of this goes to the Israelite. This whole offering, expensive offering, is set apart for God and it's burned up in the flames. Now we grimace at the brutality of this scene and our first inclination is to rush past all of the gory details here. But church, the brutality is actually part of what we're supposed to learn here. This is an elementary lesson. Ready? The penalty for sin is death. We're supposed to learn that here. There was no way that the Israelite would miss that. Now listen, after offering up this burnt offering, the Israelite would go home and there would be blood on his clothes, right? This is a brutal, it's a brutal offering. And he knew this, right? He was, it was his hand that killed this beast. The Israelite would go home understanding that my sin is serious. My sin has consequences, my God is holy, and the the penalty, the wages for my sin, is death. And sometimes our inclination, as we read that, is to say, oh, I'm glad I live in the New Testament, right? I'm, I'm glad that my God doesn't deal that way with sin." But of course, that that would be to think wrongly. Let me remind you: in Romans, the Apostle Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. Right? It's the same lesson. And you say, "Well, yeah, but at least it's not so, uh, you know, dark and ominous." Well. If you remember in the book of Revelation, the Bible talks about what's going to happen to those who don't repent of their sin, those who, who never lay their hand on the substitute, those who never lay claim to the sacrifice. Revelation 14 says, for those people, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. God hasn't changed And sin is still deadly, deadly serious. Every day, the Israelites saw the smoke billowing up from the tabernacle in the morning and in the evening. And it reminded them that God does not overlook sin. It reminded them that the wages of sin is death, Old Testament and new. And those gory details that we often fly by are actually the ones that prepare our hearts to see and lament and marvel at the cross, because as terrible as this is with the with the beasts and the lamb and the, the turtle dove and they ring off the head and all of that stuff is, is horrible to even contemplate and yet it doesn't it pale in comparison to what we see at the cross. When we consider the bloody altar and we envision the innocent animal slaughtered and broken to pieces, when we catch a glimpse in our mind's eye of the smoke ever billowing up from the tabernacle, it should direct our hearts to the cross. It should awaken our minds to the terrible sight of the innocent lamb of God who himself was flayed and disfigured, bearing in his body the curse of our sin. It was a grotesque scene at the cross. Isaiah 53, five says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. So yeah, the sacrifices were gruesome. We're gonna see that all through Leviticus. And friends, that's the point. That's the point. Here, we who take sin lightly, we who laugh it off, we who entertain it, here we're confronted with the danger of sin. Here we're confronted with a God who will not overlook it. He's not a God who who shrugs his shoulders and turns a blind eye to iniquity. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the law teaches us from day one that we absolutely cannot bring our sin into his presence. Before we approach his throne, it must be dealt with. But that leads us to this this fifth glorious lesson that we learn about God in the law. The law teaches us about God. This teaches us that he will make a way. He will make a way. So if you look again at verse 9, the second half of it, he says, And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That word translated here as pleasing could just as as easily be translated as quieting, soothing, tranquilizing. What it's communicating is that something has happened here in this offering. Something has has happened in this act of obedience that has soothed God's wrath against sin. His unflinching demand for justice was satisfied. Now, had the Israelites somehow become sinless? No. Would they go on to sin the very next day? Certainly. Well, how then could they continue to dwell with a holy, holy, holy God? By trusting in the means that he had provided for them. Every day, as they performed these sacrifices... The Israelites believed God, and it was counted to them as righteousness. The law teaches us that God does not overlook sin, but thanks be to God, the law also teaches us that he has made a way to deal with our sin that was true in the Old Testament, and it's true in the New. So how does he deal with it? Sin is dealt with by the spilling of blood. It's dealt with by the death of a spotless, unblemished sacrifice. It's dealt with by the imputing of sin and the absorbing of justice and wrath. Sin is dealt with as the people of God lay hold of the provision of God in faith. So as we conclude this morning, I do want to make sure that we we don't content ourselves with the elementary lesson. So that was the building block. And now in the final five minutes here, let me just make sure that we see beyond the building block because of course in Christ, the lights have been turned on. So the candle flickering was revealing all of that to us but now the blazing sun comes in and we see God's truth as bb B. warfield said thus the old testament revelation of god is not corrected by the full revelation which follows it but is only perfected extended and enlarged that's what that's what christ is doing he's perfecting extending and enlarging what we've learned about god here so what do we learn well our god is still the god who draws near and in the same way that it was wonderful when god drew near to his people in that tent in the wilderness we discover here that it is, it is entirely, infinitely more scandalous that our God came and dwelt in the womb of one of his creatures, that he was born in human flesh. I mean, think about the fact that Jesus right now is in human flesh. Our God has condescended to dwell with us. Our God has condescended. Jesus is going to, he's a man and he will forever be a man. Truly God, truly man. Our God is the God who draws near. And that is a scandal. It's glorious. You know, and on top of the fact, when we approach God in his terms, when we turn from our sins, we place our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the scandal of God's nearness becomes even more unfathomable because not only do we see God's nearness in Christ and dwelling with us in the flesh, but God says, well, because you are sons now, I've placed the spirit of my son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, God uses this language of how now we've become the temple of God. When you read in the Old Testament about the tabernacle and the temple and how now God's presence is, is residing with the people, you, you remember Jesus came along and he said, you're going to destroy this temple, but after three days I'm going to raise it again. And they said, oh, Jesus, you're crazy. This temple took so long to build. You couldn't rebuild this in three days. But Jesus was speaking about his body. All right, Jesus said the whole tabernacle temple thing, This whole, this building block was teaching you, preparing you to recognize me. I am the nearness of God with you. I am Emmanuel, God with us. That's what it means. And then when Jesus ascended, he did this crazy thing where he said, and now my church is going to be God with us. I'm going to, my spirit is going to dwell in the church. It's going to dwell in the people of God. And it is going to be the place where people can encounter the living God. Doesn't that feel a little bit humbling? I don't know about you, but sometimes when people encounter me, I wonder if they walked away feeling like they encountered the living God. But the Spirit dwells in us, and he should be overflowing from us. He should be shining through us. Our God is still the God who draws near when we approach him on his terms. And our God is still the God who goes first. I love this. Romans 5, 8. You know this verse. Just hear it fresh. God shows his love for us in that While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Are you a sinner today? Have you done things that you're ashamed of? Do you feel like it would be an absolute miracle for that holy, holy, holy God that we just described, for that God to ever know you and love you and forgive you? Does that feel like a miracle? Well, get in line. It is a miracle. It is a miracle that God has drawn near to us. It's a miracle that he sent his son to redeem us. It's a miracle that rather than waiting for us to try and build that ladder to heaven, that God drew near and he stooped down and he called us to himself before many of us were even looking for him. He stooped down and called us to himself, even when some of us were mocking him and scoffing at him. Some of you could raise your hand. That was you. That was the apostle Paul. Remember when he was Saul and he was, a, he was persecuting the people of God? He wasn't, he wasn't searching for God. He was fighting God and yet God came to him and he, he blinded him and then he opened up his eyes and he gave him a new name and, and he used Paul to spread the gospel to the world. That's who our God is and that's what he does. That's what he's always done, Old Testament and new. And just as God called out specifically, particularly to Moses from the tabernacle, so too does he call to us today. Jesus looked out at the crowds, looked out at the people who were broken, a people who were covered in sin, of people who didn't know which way was up and which way was down, Of people who, tr- truth be told, many of them were just following Jesus because they wanted some free food. He looked out at the crowds and he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Our God is the God who calls out. Else- elsewhere, Jesus looks out at another crowd and he says to them, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And in fact, if you read through your Bible, you come to the very last page. And what do we read? In the same way, God is calling to us. It says, the spirit and the bride, as the, the church. The spirit and the, and the church say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He goes first. And maybe he's going first for some of you right now in this moment. Your sin separates you from God. Yes, that's true. That was true in the Old Testament. It's true today. And he has seen it all. you know. The sin that you're concerned about, it's worse. He sees more than that. He sees all your evil thoughts, all your wicked deeds, everything you try to hide from the world. The Bible says he even sees all the wicked things that motivate your good deeds. That's why he says all your good deeds are like filthy rags before God because he sees the motives and the agenda. He sees it all. It's enough reason for him to banish you from his presence forever. And yet... God has made a way for sinners to be brought into right relationship with him because that is what he does, Old Testament and New. And the way that has been made is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in the same way that the Israelites laid their hand upon the offering and they leaned on it and they prayed a prayer and they said, this offering is for me, this is because of my sin that this animal is dying. This is the death that I should have died, but this is, this is my offering. In the same way they did that, so too are we to lay hold of Christ. Lay hold of him. Reach out in faith, grab hold of that cross and say, God, I'm believing in faith that this offering, this substitute was enough to set me free that this blood that was shed was enough to wash me clean, and that in this sacrifice, I am made right to come before your throne. And as you do that, as you lay hold of him in faith, you'll hear Jesus, you'll sense in your heart, you'll hear him from the cross declaring, it is finished, it's done the whole sacrificial system, all these things that were pointing forward. You know, why was God sad? Why was he pleased? Why was he appeased when that smoke offering went up to him in Leviticus? It's because it was pointing forward in faith to the one offering that would finally settle our debt. Truly God and truly man as a substitute in our place. The sacrifice is accepted, friends. Your sin is gone, Christian. Some of you don't feel that. Let me just say it again. Christian, your sin is gone as far as the east is from the west. Live like that's true. The way has been made. And that is the elementary lesson that we learn in the law. The beauty of it is fleshed out in Christ. But we see it here even in the book of Leviticus. God is holy and just, friends. And he is also merciful and good. That's the message of the Bible, Old Testament and New. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. The Heavenly Father, we just surrender ourselves to you today. And I'm mindful of the fact what we just read, the fact that you do go first. And Lord, it humbles me as a, as a preacher of your word. Because I know, Lord, it's not about it's not about us. It's not about our presentation. It's not like I could present a a gospel plea that would be compelling enough that anyone would come. The reality is nobody will come to you unless you first call them by name. So God, I pray that you would do that in this moment. There are people watching at home online. There are people here today. Lord, who knows who's fallen under the preaching of your word. Maybe there are people who have been in the church for their entire lives and yet they've never understood, never placed their trust in this sacrifice that was made that they could come home, that they've never seen your holiness. So they never understood why the cross needed to happen. Lord, I don't know. But I, I just pray that you would minister to the hearts of people today. And I'm asking that in faith because you're good, because you're you're holy and just and righteous. Because rather than discarding us, all of humanity, rather than flicking us off your leg, like the same way we flicked bugs off of our leg today in this field, you look at us and we're not bugs to you. There's something about us. Lord, you've made us in your image. You love us. And while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us. Uh, it's a scandal of all scandals and the wonder of all wonders. And Lord, we do not we barely comprehend it. We've seen an inch of the glory of that. I pray that today you would enlarge our vision, whether that's for the first time, or Lord, maybe there are Christians today who just need a greater view of your goodness and your grace. Let us see. Let us respond. And Lord, I pray that we as sinful fallen people would lay hold of Christ and we would trust in faith that the way has been made and that we're gonna come all the way home. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Amen, worship team, would you lead us?